Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Tulsa Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Let's turn over to the book of Romans tonight, chapter 1, and I just want to share some really simple things with you. You know, everything I share is just simple because I'm simple. If it's complicated, I can't understand it. And I think that the, the body of Christ has complicated things by getting off on some of these tangents. You know, I just constantly live in the basics uh, that God has shown me and it's, it's all I can do to just keep up with the basics, much less get off on some tangent and do all of these things. So I'm gonna just share some really simple things with you tonight, but in Romans chapter one, verse 16, Look at this, this is an awesome, awesome passage of scripture. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, talking about the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. You know, this is important the way that this is stated. This didn't say that Jesus was the power of God. Of course, I think you could make that statement from many other things because of course, everything revolves about what, around what Jesus has done for us. But this is specifically saying that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Again, this is just a radical statement that the gospel is what releases the power of God for salvation. Now, let me just define a couple of things before I expound this, but the word salvation here has been used by religion to refer to just the forgiveness of sins alone, the initial born again experience. And it includes that, but it's not limited to that. If you look at the actual Greek word that's used here, it's the word zoe, and it's talking about our, and it's speaking of everything that Jesus died to accomplish, which includes healing of your body and prosperity and joy and deliverance. Matter of fact, I'm not gonna turn over there and, and turn to these verses, but you can find examples where this exact same word, like over in James chapter five, was translated healed. It says a prayer of faith will save the sick, sozo the sick. And so the word salvation here isn't limited to forgiveness of sins. This is talking about everything that Jesus died to produce. Galatians chapter one, verse four says that Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Not just the one to come. A huge portion of the body of Christ only believes in a future deliverance from all of these things. But Jesus died to deliver us from this present evil world. We should be free from the oppression of this world. There ought to be a difference between people who are, are truly saved and people who aren't. And yet sadly, there's a lot of people that if they were arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. They're as sick as their unsaved neighbors. They're as worried as their unsaved neighbors. When the great recession hit, they were as poor as their unsaved neighbors. They have the exact same problem. It's not meant to be that way. And I think one of the big problems in the body of Christ is where we have changed what salvation means to it just means forgiveness of sins. And then you're saved and stuck until you get to heaven. What a day that will be. You know, in the sweet by and by, what a day that'll be. But in the rough now and now, everybody's just struggling 
That's not true salvation. So when the scripture says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, this isn't limited to talking about just forgiveness of sins, but the gospel is the power towards healing, the power towards prosperity, the power towards joy and peace and happiness and deliverance from all kinds of things. So if you are having problems in any of these areas, if there's sickness, if there's poverty, if there's loneliness, if there's grief, if there's sorrow, if there's any of these things, Jesus died to forgive us of all of those things and deliver us from them in this life. And the power that releases you from those things is the gospel. Now, when I say that, there's a lot of people who think, well, it's got to be more than that because I know the gospel and yet I'm still bound. Well, here's another definition for you. I believe that gospel is very specific what it's referring to. It's not just talking about the forgiveness of your sins. Or, you know, today there's a lot of people that will stand up and preach that God's angry at you. I was, Renee down here, one of the ladies that works for us was telling me that she was brought up in a home where they said that it, every minute you stood in front of a mirror was one minute in purgatory. And so they would run by mirrors in their home. And if they had to put on makeup, they'd set a timer so that they wouldn't spend any more time. And some people will preach that, that you're going to purgatory for one hour for every minute that you stand in front of a mirror. You're going to hell. They'll condemn people and they'll say, that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And actually, I believe it means more than that because I was reading a commentary on this and they said that the word, the Greek word that was used for gospel in the New Testament was so rare that outside of the Bible, there's only two examples of this word being used in all of the Greek literature that we have access to. It was an obscure word that was hardly ever used because it meant technically good news, but actually it would be more appropriate for us today to relate to it, to mean too good to be true news. Almost too good to be true. And there was nothing too good to be true until Jesus came along. But when Jesus died for us and delivered us, not only from our sins, but from our sickness and from our disease and from all of these things, then they started using this word to apply to what he did because it was nearly too good to be true news. So if you use that definition, which I believe is the accurate def definition of the word gospel, then what is it talking about? That the gospel, the nearly too good to be true news is the power of God unto salvation, healing, deliverance, prosperity, joy, peace, all of these things. And what we are hearing today in the vast majority of churches is not the gospel. People are being told that there is an angry God and that God is mad at you and that unless you repent, unless you do these things, that the wrath of God is coming upon you. And they'll call that the gospel. And then even after a person gets born again, they will basically tell you that sure, God has all of this power, but it is completely conditional upon your performance as to whether or not God will release this power in your life. And they'll call that the gospel. That's not good news. That's terrible news. If you tie everything God does to your performance, then I'm telling you, there is no good news associated with that. And some of you might think, well, you don't know how good I am. 
Well, you don't know how good God demands. God doesn't grade on a curve. You either make a hundred or if you make 99.9, you failed, you go to hell. You don't pass go, you don't collect $200. You just go straight to hell. God doesn't have this system of comparing ourselves among ourselves, but you either have to be perfect or the gospel is that God sent Jesus and took all of your punishment, all of my punishment, all of it, not a portion of it, all of it. He paid for everything. And now you, it is not your performance that releases the power of God. It's not your goodness that God is looking at. He is looking at Jesus. Let me turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to make this point to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us. Notice the terminology. He hath reconciled us. The word reconcile means to make friendly again or to bring into harmony like when you tune a guitar, you're reconciling those strings unto themselves. When you take your checkbook, you reconcile your accounts to what the bank says. They have to come into harmony and say the same thing. And this says, he hath reconciled us to God by Jesus Christ, uh, unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry is supposed to be bringing people back into harmony, into union with Christ. And yet to a large degree, the body of Christ is out of harmony, out of union. The scripture says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? And I'm going to share a lot of scriptures with you tonight. And God loves you. God is not imputing sin unto you. He's not angry at you. He's not upset with you. And if you think that he's upset, if you don't understand how much he loves you, then you aren't in agreement with him. You aren't reconciled to him. And sadly, most of the body of Christ is not reconciled. Well, let me rephrase that. They are reconciled. God has reconciled them, but they aren't reconciled to God. God is in harmony with you, but most of us don't know we aren't in harmony with God because we aren't in agreement with him. And so it says in the next verse, in verse 10, to wit, that's old English for that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us this word of reconciliation. The way that God made us into harmony with him and brought us into relationship with him was that he didn't impute our sin unto us. Now again, to most people, this is just religious terminology. They don't think about this. But most Christians believe that God does impute our sin unto us. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to record or to put on the books, to hold against us. This verse, and there's many others, if I can talk fast enough, I'll get over to some others here tonight. But Jesus isn't imputing your sins unto you. And it says he didn't impute the sins of the world unto them. Here's another verse. You might ought to look this up in your Bible over in 1 John chapter 2. 
Because in the previous chapter, he had talked about, you know, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have no sin, the truth isn't in us. We make God a liar. And then he says in chapter two, verse one, my little children, these things have I written unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation that word of propitiation means atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you know that that verse right there is absolutely out of the realm of most religion today? This says that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, those of us who are in the body of Christ, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the entire world have already been dealt with. Thank you for that thunderous silence. Some of you are thinking, so are you saying that everybody's saved? No, because you know, like this book that I was uh, advertising, the scripture says you're saved by grace through faith. Grace is God's part. Grace is what God does. And grace is unmerited, undeserved. Plus the scripture says in John chapter one that we beheld Jesus full of grace and truth. And it says in that same chapter that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. Grace came into this world through Jesus and that was 2000 years ago. So one of the main characteristics of grace is that it's not something that happens in the future in response to how you act. It's something that happened 2000 years ago before you and I even existed. God's grace was poured out and by grace, the sins of the entire human race were placed upon Jesus and they were paid for. Sins have been paid for for 2,000 years. God isn't imputing people's sins unto them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. He has already been made the atonement, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He's not holding men's sins against them. If you're listening to what I'm saying, you ought to be recognizing that this is different than what nearly every person in here has been taught. Most people are taught that God is angry and God is about to destroy the earth. Matter of fact, uh, I won't mention the name, but this famous preacher in America had a sermon that he preached and it says that he hung people over hell with a thread, a thin thread that was on fire and ready to break. And people would get so nervous that their knuckles would turn wide, holding onto the pew. He could make hell so real. And he would preach all of this. And people felt like God was angry. And if they didn't repent, he was going to punish them for their sins. Did you know Jesus has already paid for the sins of the entire world? God isn't mad. He's not even in a bad mood. Sin... I know some of you are going to choke on this, but you know what? I'm leaving. I'm just going to say this and you can accept it or reject it. But you know, sin isn't a big deal with God. And some of you are just livid 
about, man, people need to know that they're sinners. God's already paid for the sins of the whole world. So does that mean that they're saved? No, because that grace is God's part. By grace, he's already dealt with all of our sins. And here's another thing that'll shock some of you, but according to Hebrews chapter nine and chapter 10, he's dealt with all of our sins, past, present, and even future sins. Sins that you haven't even committed yet have already been paid for through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And somebody's thinking, how can God forgive a sin before I commit it? Well, you better pray that he can because he only died for your sins one time 2,000 years ago before you and I committed it. If God didn't forgive your sins back then and if he has to forgive your sins now, well, then you can't be saved because Jesus isn't gonna die again. He's not gonna make the atonement. Jesus paid for your sins and my sins 2,000 years ago. Sin is not the issue with God. So somebody say, is everybody saved? No, because grace is God's part. God has paid for your sins. They're already atoned for. Now, you have to put faith in God's grace. And see, this is why some people aren't saved and some people are saved. It's not because some people have deserved it and God has responded to them. No, God has already provided salvation and not only salvation, the forgiveness of sins, but he's forgot, provided healing, deliverance, prosperity, joy, peace, anything that you ever will need, it's already been done God doesn't have to do something to save you. He's already done everything it takes to save you, but it doesn't work until you put faith in what he has done. Faith is what releases the power of God that has already been released. And specifically, it's not faith that God can do it, but faith that God has done it through Christ, that Jesus paid everything that you ever need to do. And I'm making this kind of wordy. I don't know how I got off on all of this stuff, but this is what the gospel is signifying. The gospel isn't just talking about that Jesus died for our sins, that people will say that, but it's how do you appropriate what he did? And sometimes it's not clearly stated, but it's implied that, well, if you will fast, if you will pray, if you will study the word, if you'll go to church, if you'll pay your tithes, if you'll start living holy, if you don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, then God will move. That's not the gospel because that is putting the burden of all of these things upon you. But the true gospel is referring to what Jesus did for us 2000 years ago before you and I ever existed, before we ever did anything wrong or good, it has nothing to do with you and any goodness on your part. Jesus has already done it all. Now, are you gonna reach out and by faith, trust what he did are you gonna come under the belief that no, I've got to live holy for God to answer my prayer? If you are trusting in yourself and trusting that God is responding to you based on your performance, then you don't understand the gospel. And that's the very reason that the word of God, the power of God hasn't been released in your life is because you are thinking that it's proportional to your own goodness. And I can promise you, regardless of how good you are, you are gonna come short 
of what God wants you to be. And your own conscience will condemn you. And the word of God will condemn you. The law part of the word of God will show you sin. That was the purpose of the law was to point out your sin. And it's very, very good at that. It'll show you your mistakes. Then your conscience will condemn you. Satan will add to that. And the average Christian lives in condemnation, believing that God has all of this power, but they aren't believing that he will use that power on their behalf because they're under the law. They haven't come under the gospel. They aren't putting faith in what Jesus has done. Boy, those are big statements that I made right there. Those are huge statements. You know, many of you have heard me talk about my son being raised from the dead. I've seen three people raised from the dead. I've seen miracles happen. If you didn't believe in miracles, you wouldn't be here tonight. This isn't your nod to God crowd. This isn't Sunday morning. You aren't paying your debt. You're a fanatic. Or either you were brought here by a fanatic, amen. You believe in the supernatural power of God. And if I told you that I believe that God can raise people from the dead, you know, if somebody died here tonight, and if I said, well, hey, I've seen people raised from the dead. How many of you believe God can raise somebody from the dead? Most of you'd be right there with me, man. You'd be shouting and saying, we believe it. But where I could lose the majority of people, I say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and you pray for them. And you know what? A lot of people who are excited about me praying for it, they don't doubt that it can happen. But when I say you come pray for them, all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What happened? What's the difference? Did you think that God all of a sudden quit healing? He doesn't have any power. No, see, that's not what it is. We don't doubt God's power, his ability. What we doubt is his willingness to use his power, his ability on our behalf because our own conscience condemns us. And we know that we aren't the person that we're supposed to be. And we have been incorrectly taught that God moves in your life proportional to your holiness, proportional to your goodness. That's not the gospel. That's anti-gospel. That is against the gospel. In other words, you're saying that it's according to what you do. The true gospel, everything is on what Jesus did for us. It's not about what you do. It's about what was done for you. Now put a little parentheses here. Don't forget where I am and where I'm going. But for those of you that are under legalism and are feeling like, oh, I believe you got to live holy. I agree that you do need to live holy, but your holiness doesn't change God's heart towards you. Your holiness changes your heart towards God. The reason we live holy is because Satan takes advantage of sin in our life. Romans chapter six, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, then you are yielding yourself to Satan, the author of that sin, and John 10, 10 says that the thief, Satan, comes for no other purpose except to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If you yield yourself to sin and therefore to Satan, Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. You don't want that. 
He gains inroad into your life through sin. So I do believe in living holy, but if I start using my holiness as a basis of my relationship with God and say, God, I know you're gonna answer my prayer now because I've been fasting, I've prayed, I've done this, then you are against Christ. You are anti-Christ. You are trying to approach Jesus on the basis of your goodness instead of Jesus. And somebody's thinking, no, I'd never do that. But I believe that you also have to be whole. Well, then here's another way of saying it. You believe that it's Jesus plus you equals success. And I guarantee you, the moment you mix you into this thing, you have just polluted what Jesus has done. You at your very best are not good. And I know some of you may take offense at that and that's the reason that you don't understand the gospel. You know, I heard a story about a little boy that wanted to go watch a movie and so he went to his dad. His dad was pastor of a church. And he says, can I go to this show with my friends? And his dad says, well, what's the movie rated? And he said, well, it's an R-rated movie, but there's just a little bit of nudity. There's just a little bit of profanity. There's just a little bit of violence. And all of the other kids are going, dad, please, can I still go? And the dad said, no. And the kid was just crushed. And so to compensate, he says, you can invite your friends over to the house. So he brought his friends over to the house and they were playing at the house. And the dad went in and fixed a whole batch of brownies and brought these brownies out and he was gonna serve them to the kids. And man, these hot brownies smelled good. The kids wanted them and, he, and right before he gave it to him, he said, now let me tell you, there's just a little bit of dog poop in these brownies. There's not a lot. It won't hurt you. You can't taste it. It won't make you sick. It's not bad, but it's just a little bit of dog poop. Nobody ate it. But you know, there's some people that think, well, I don't believe that I can save myself. It's got to be Jesus, but I also have to put your poop in there with what Jesus did. I know you might not use that terminology, but that's really what it amounts to. Your goodness compared to Jesus is like dog poop and it, it pollutes everything. All of your goodness is like filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64 says that. You know what that filthy rag literally means in the Hebrew? It's talking about a menstrual cloth. Your righteousness is like a filthy menstrual cloth and you're gonna try and put your righteousness in there right alongside Jesus in order to be able to receive from God I tell you, brothers and sisters, you've got to understand that the moment you add you as a link in the chain, then you have just weakened the whole thing. Because I can guarantee you, you don't deserve the things of God. And some of you are taking offense. Wow, you don't know how good I am. You don't know how good God demands. I'm telling you, you can't relate to God based on your own goodness. And you can't make it you plus Jesus or Jesus plus you. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If your faith is in Jesus, then 
That is the gospel. See, this is what the gospel is referring to. It's not just talking about that there's a heaven and there's a hell and God is just and we're unjust and we're going to hell unless we repent. That's not the gospel. The gospel is specifically identifying how do you take advantage of salvation? How is it that you receive from God? And it's talking about faith in Jesus and what he did alone that you don't mix into the thing. It's not your goodness. It's based 100% on what Jesus has done for you. And if you preach anything besides that, that's not the gospel. And brothers and sisters, we've had things preached. What America has heard is not the gospel. We have heard that there is a God, there is a devil, there's a heaven and there's a hell, that God is all powerful, but we've, taught, we've been taught that God will only release his power and answer your prayers when you live worthy of receiving from him. And that is not the gospel. And that is the reason that we haven't seen the power of God revealed because we haven't preached the true gospel. The true gospel, it's all about what he did. Now, again, like I was saying, we should live holy, but not in order to receive from God. That's all based on what Jesus did. It's an absolutely free gift. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. The only thing you can do is either believe and receive it by faith in what God has done, or if you doubt, you do without. If you start trusting in your own goodness and relating to God based on your own power, that's what limits God in your life. So here's another way of saying it. It's not people's sins that is stopping them from receiving from God. It's their goodness. Their trust in their goodness. There's nothing wrong with you living good. Again, if you live a holy life, it limits Satan's access to you. You know, I praise God that he called me to preach grace because if I was a person who had lived in terrible sin and was living in sin and just violating the word of God, then people would find me an easy target to criticize and they'd say, well, I know why you preach grace. It's because you live such a bad life and I use it to excuse an ungodly lifestyle. But you know what? I've lived holier than most of you in here. I just turned 65. I've never used a word of profanity in my 65 years. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never drank coffee. I've never tasted coffee. <laughs> Some of you are thinking coffee. There's nothing wrong with coffee. You can drink coffee. You got a scripture that says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm not against coffee. I'm just saying I have lived a super holy life. But you know what? I found that I can't relate to God by my own goodness. I got born again when I was eight years old. The very first time that God nailed me over committing a sin. It's not the first time I sinned. But it was the first time I knew I did something that was not just violating my parents. I, I sinned. I did stuff that I knew was wrong and my conscience smote me. And the very first time 
that I was convicted over sin. I repented and got born again in my bedroom. My dad led me to the Lord. And I mean, it was a genuine conversion. And the next day in school, the third grade, my friends could tell I was different. And they said, what happened to you? And I told them I got born again. And they started making fun of me. I was made fun of in the third grade for being a Christian. Lost some of my friends. I mean, it was a genuine conversion. But then I went to church. And they started telling me that if you want God to answer your prayers, if you want God to bless you, you got to do this, this, and this. And I don't know exactly how I got it, but I equated God's blessing and God's answering my prayers and everything on how good I was. And so I tried to be as good as I could possibly be. And I lived holier than the preacher of the church. I mean, they would talk about things. I'd never done any of these things. I lived a holy life, but my, my trust was in my own goodness. I thought God was gonna use me and answer my prayers because I was good, because I had done all of these things. And yet I wasn't seeing the power of God manifest. And I didn't know what the problem was. And on March the 23rd, 1968, it's a long story, but God showed up when I was in a prayer meeting and he showed me that I was a religious Pharisee. Now I was saved. If I would have died, I'd have gone to heaven. I was born again, but I had fallen into this trap of thinking that God loved me because I was such a good person. And I, you know, that's what breeds all prejudice and all guilt and condemnation is you compare yourselves with other people and I would often think, you know, I'm better than all of these other people. And when God showed up in that prayer meeting, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but in a second, I just knew that all my righteousness was like a filthy rag. I knew I was unrighteous and holy. I knew that everything I had done, as good as it was compared to other people, I deserved to go to hell. Now I was born again, but when you're in the presence of God, and I mean, there was a physical manifestation of God's presence. I intuitively knew my unworthiness, my comparable unworthiness to God. Anybody in here who's sitting there and you've been listening to me and you're, you're sitting there still holding on to your holiness and thinking, you just don't know how good I am. You've never been in the supernatural presence of God. Anytime you find somebody in the Bible who literally came into contact with God every time, Isaiah fell on his face. Oh God, depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Peter put his coat around him and threw himself into the water. People would fall at their face as if dead. Any person in here who is really excited about your goodness and holiness, what you need is to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And I guarantee you, you'd quit that in a heartbeat. You at your best don't deserve anything from God. And in a moment's time, I came to that realization. And at that time, I had been taught that God was the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old. The pastor of the church came over on Easter Sunday morning and told me that God needed your dad in heaven more than you needed him. 
And we were taught that nothing happens but what God wills it. It's all God's will. And so I was told that God's the one that killed my dad. And I was, I was taught that God was this harsh person who demanded perfection and all of these things. So anyway, with the theology that I had and when I saw how ungodly I was, I thought God was gonna kill me. And some of you may think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. I honestly thought God was gonna kill me. And right before he killed me, I was in the presence of God. And I just started repenting of everything I could think of. And I hadn't done that much outwardly. I hadn't done the big 10 that, you know, people talk about. But I, so I started confessing my thoughts. You know, the Bible says, if you lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. If you hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder. I began to confess all of the thoughts that I had, things that I hadn't even done, but just thoughts. And it was in front of the pastor and all of the leaders of the church. I ruined whatever reputation I had <laughs> for an hour and a half. I just turned myself inside out and I confessed everything I could think of, hoping that, you know, before the Lord killed me, I was gonna get all of this sin out of my life so that maybe I'd be accepted. And to my surprise, instead of the Lord killing me, I had a tangible love of God come on me and for four and a half months, I was caught up in the presence of God. I didn't eat or sleep consciously for four and a half months. I'd sleep an hour at a time. I couldn't sit down and eat because I was so excited about God loving me. And it was wonderful, but it really confused me because I had been taught that God's love is proportional to how holy you are. And I had been living holy and doing all of these things and I never had an encounter with God. And it was when I finally realized how sorry I was and how that I didn't deserve anything and I just threw myself on the mercy of God, that's when I experienced God and I couldn't understand. Why did it happen that way? I've been doing all these good things. And it took me a while to figure it out, but what it was, it was the gospel. When I quit trusting in my goodness, when I quit proclaiming my own goodness and saying, God, you owe it to me because I've gone to church, I'm holy, I'm this. When I just humbled myself and said, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is when I experienced God. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's people right in here that it is your goodness, or actually it's your trust in your goodness that is keeping you from experiencing the healing of God, the prosperity of God, the joy of God, because you are thinking it's gonna be according to your goodness. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12. He doesn't accuse God, he's accusing you. And if you think that God is gonna move proportional to what you deserve, well then Satan's got you because you aren't good enough to deserve anything. You don't deserve to be healed. You don't deserve to be blessed. And if you think that you have to earn these things, then all Satan's gotta do is just bring up your failures to you, which they are abundant, and you will be condemned, and you won't doubt God's ability. You'll just doubt that he'll use it for you because you don't deserve it. I tell you, it is liberating to find out the true gospel that it's not about me and what I've done. It's all about Jesus. 
And it's what he's done. And all I've got to do is keep my faith in Jesus. The Bible says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. You know, there's multiple ways to apply that, but one way that you could apply it right here is when the devil comes and starts condemning you and saying, you're ungodly, you're unworthy. What makes you think God would answer your prayer? Agree with your adversary and just say, guilty, you got me. I don't deserve it. I think I'll just get it through who Jesus is. I think I'll put my faith in Jesus and I'll stand in what he did. Amen. You know, I was pastor in a church and I had seen these things, but you don't get this revelation just, you know, all at once and it's done. It's a progressive thing. I've had some friends lately, some really well-known ministers that most of you know and see on television that God hold of these things. And I tell you, it's changed their life. And I was just talking to them last week and it's progressive. They're just constantly seeing the word open up and seeing these things happen. You'd, so anyway, I'd already had a glimpse of this, but I was pastoring a church in Pritchett, Colorado. We saw a man raised from the dead in this little tiny town of 144 people. I had a hundred people coming to church. It was awesome. If I could get that percentage in Tulsa, we'd have a big church, amen. <laughs> But uh, I was ministering and people had never heard the true gospel. All they had ever heard was religion. And it was causing no small stir. People were coming from everywhere. And I was praying for people, ministering to people day and night. And I didn't have any time to spend with the Lord. And I knew that I needed to fill myself up. I couldn't give out forever. So I made a commitment to the Lord one night that the next day I was going to fast and pray and study the word all day long. And I was sincere. That's what I wanted to do. But I had people come over in an emergency situation and wake me up at like five o'clock in the morning. And so I started praying, but I was praying for people. And I promised that I would study the word all day. And the only time I ever opened the word was to minister to people. I had a steady stream of people coming through that needed prayer. And then at lunch, there was a guy that I'd been witnessing to for months. And he came by and wanted to take me out to eat. And I thought, today could be the day this guy gets born again. And I said, man, I'm not going to miss an opportunity to witness to him just because I'm fasting. So I went out and since I didn't eat breakfast, I was really hungry at lunch. And I ate twice as much as I normally did. So I broke every single promise I made to God. And then that night I was driving 45 miles to go minister in a Bible study. And as I headed over there, I just felt so guilty. I said, God, I failed in everything I promised you. And you know, the devil will bring scripture back to your remembrance. He started bringing scripture back about it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay. All liars will have their part in the lake of fire that burns forever. You're supposed to swear to your own hurt and change not. And I was just, oh God, I failed you. How could you ever use me? You may have different stories, but you know what? Most Christians feel exactly the way I'm describing right here. You, you know that God is awesome and God has done things in your life. But when it comes to God flowing through you, you let Satan condemn you and you're embarrassed, ashamed, timid, shy about sharing the word because you know that you aren't the person that you're supposed to be and it takes your confidence away. Your confidence shouldn't be in you. It should be in God. 
But see, I had fallen back into this mindset. And so as I was driving over there, I was crying and praying and saying, oh God, I'm sorry. But, you know, just bless the people. Even if I'm not worthy, even if I broke every promise to you, just, you know, do it because you love the people. And I still didn't feel any faith or any relief. So I just kept bartering with God and saying, I, I said, oh God, just do it because of who Jesus is. And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to me and he said, who did you think I was gonna do it because of? <laughs> and I realized I had fallen back into thinking that God, I was gonna fast and pray and that would make me worthy for you to use me. You know what that is? That's not the gospel. There's nothing wrong with fasting and praying and studying the word. All of those things are good. But if you do that in order to get God to move, then you don't know the gospel. You aren't living in the gospel. You are tying God's blessing and power to yourself. And this is the very thing that is stopping the power of God from flowing in most people's life is because their own conscience condemns them and they know they aren't worthy and they are mistaken in thinking they've got to be worthy for God to use them. You know, we're gonna give an invitation for the baptism of the Holy Spirit down here. And one of the things that has been taught in religion is that for you to receive the Holy Spirit, you gotta get all sin out of your life. You gotta be holy. The Holy Spirit won't fill a dirty vessel. I'm telling you that God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to fill. We're just all in varying stages of being dirty. And I know there's some people probably taking offense at that, but I can guarantee you all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that isn't talking about 20 years ago. That's talking about today. Did you know that the Bible says that you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church? How many of you love your wife totally unconditionally, would lay your life down and die. There's some people that desire that and probably closer to it than they were, but there's not a person in here that can claim that you love your wife as Christ loved the church. The scripture says that the woman is supposed to reverence her husband as the church reverences Christ. There's not a woman in here that is fulfilling that. You may be doing better than you've ever done. You may be better than most people in here, but who wants to be the best sinner that ever missed the mark? We've all sinned and none of us are doing this right. So if you use what the Bible says, the Bible says to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin. Sin isn't only breaking the big 10. Sin is being less than what God told you to be. The Bible says you're supposed to not look on your own things, but also on the things of others. You're supposed to esteem others better than yourself. Most of us are so focused on ourselves that we forget others and we don't honor. All of us are sinning and coming short constantly. We aren't the person we're supposed to be. And if you think that you've got to be holy enough to receive the Holy Spirit, you'll never receive the Holy Spirit. I tell people all the time, if you've got sin in your life, if you're committing adultery, if you're lying, if you're stealing, if you're a drug addict, you are the very one that God wants to fill with the power of the Holy Spirit so he can give you power to start getting over these things. Sin won't keep God from moving. Sin will condemn you. And if you don't understand the gospel, 
the true gospel that it's not about you. It's all about Jesus and that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. If you don't understand that, well, then your conscience will condemn you and it will, you will stop God from moving. But your sin won't stop God from moving. Sin might condemn you and keep you from believing. It may bring you into condemnation, but sin is not the issue with God. Jesus paid all of your sin, all of your sin, past, present, and even the sin that you haven't committed yet has already been placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for all of your sin. And if he did, well, then there's no reason that you ought to pay too. And yet, basically, we've been paying for our own sins. We've been feeling like we have to be separated. People feel like I can't have the joy of the Lord. I just sinned. That's because you're basing the joy of the Lord on your performance instead of on what Jesus did. You know, I use that verse already that sin, the way that Jesus reconciled the world unto himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, is that he didn't impute our sins unto us. But what he did do, it's not just him saying, all right, I'm gonna quit holding people's sins against them. That would be unjust. God is holy and God is just. He can't just turn a blind eye and say, I'm not gonna impute sin anymore. That would have been unjust. He paid for sin. He put your sin and my sin upon Jesus and he punished Jesus for our sins. So he's not unjust to treat us as if we had never sinned because he's punished our sins in the flesh of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would be unjust now to punish you and Jesus. That would be double jeopardy. You know, the closest thing that I can come to a comparison to the word impute is when you use a credit card. When you use a credit card and you go buy something, you give them the credit card and you know what they do? They impute it unto you. You don't pay for that when you give the credit card. You haven't paid for it. If you think you have, then just refuse to pay the credit card bill when it comes and say, hey, I've already paid for this and see how that works. <laughs> you don't pay for it when you give them the credit card, but that little metallic strip on it has your information so that they can impute it unto you, so that they can put it on the books, that they can send the bill to your credit card company and then your credit card company bills you and you have to pay for it later. Well, if you went up to pay for something and you were gonna put your credit card down and you were gonna let them impute it, and yet I came up and I just said, hey, impute it unto me. Charge it to my card. And you might think, well, I don't know you. This isn't right for you to pay for my stuff. But if I was just, you know, like God, that I just loved you and I paid for it, well, then you would be crazy to sit there and say, well, I've got to pay something. No, if the thing's paid for, and if, you know, if the business said, well, you're the one that got the merchandise, so you ought to pay something. So we're going to go ahead and make you pay 10%. You'd be crazy to go ahead and pay for that if I had paid for it. If it was imputed unto me, why would you pay for it too? And yet in Christianity, People say, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins and paid for my sins, but then we feel that we have to also bear the shame. 
We have to bear punishment. We can't be as close to God as somebody else because we haven't lived as holy as they have. And God won't answer our prayer. We can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because I'm not worthy and things like that. That's you paying for your sins too. And I'm telling you the gospel, the good news is that Jesus paid for it all. He's already paid for everything. It's not about your goodness. The only reason you live holy is to limit Satan's access so that you don't have the same guilt and condemnation. But you know what? As good as you can live, and like I said, I've lived better than most of you. I can't stand before God in my own goodness because I'm unworthy. I don't have some of the memories that you have. I don't have people coming from my past that may agitate me and bring things back to my remembrance. I advocate living holy as much as you can. It's a better way to live. But I guarantee you, I cannot stand before God based on my own goodness. I have to humble myself and I constantly have to stand before God talking about who He is and putting my faith in what He's done and not in myself. And I tell you, religious people have a hard, hard time with what I'm saying because this is against what religion is preaching. Religion is basically saying, you be good and then God will treat you good. God treats you good because he's good, not because you're good. God is love. You aren't lovely. And some of you, well, I am too. Well, compared to me or somebody else, you might look good, but compared to Jesus, you've sinned and come short of that standard. You cannot approach God based on your own goodness and you have to humble yourself. In Romans chapter three, verse 27, this is the verse that the Lord used to speak to Martin Luther when he was climbing up the steps at the Vatican and it caused the reformation that has caused what has happened in our life today. And that verse says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. If you are boasting and if you're thinking, but I'm really a good person, because you don't understand the gospel. You're still mixing your own goodness in there. If you truly understand the gospel, it makes you humble. It makes you recognize that I don't care how good I live. I don't care how much I believe, how much I do anything. It is not my goodness. It is the grace of God and all I've done is believe and receive. True gospel makes a person humble. And there's many people today boasting and bragging about their goodness and their greatness and look what I've done. It's because you don't understand the gospel. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> Again, I'm assuming that the majority of you in here are fanatics to come out on a Friday night to hear me. And so most of you in here are probably truly born again. But you know, we fall back into a performance mentality, maybe not for our salvation. If you were to die, you would stand before God based on what Jesus did. But in a day-to-day -day relationship with God, most people are trying to earn God's favor. And the reason we aren't seeing a greater manifestation of God's power is because your own conscience and the devil are condemning you and telling you you aren't worthy the good news is you don't have to be worthy. It's all about Jesus and what he did for you. And all you've got to do is just believe and receive based on his goodness, not your goodness. That's the true gospel. 
And when you understand this, it just releases the power of God. You know, I remember one of the first times I ever taught on this was in Denver, Colorado, back 25, 30 years ago. And I had a series that was entitled, The Law is Not of Faith. We don't even have it available anymore. I've taught it in different ways. But I taught on this and people started relating to God based on what Jesus did and not based on their goodness. And I spent five days teaching on this and we started seeing so many miracles happen. You know why? Because the gospel, when you take people's attention off of themselves and you start putting it on Jesus, that's the power of God unto salvation. That's what releases power. And when you get your eyes off of yourself and you start looking at Jesus, he's the author and the finisher of your faith and faith just rises up. If you're understanding what I'm saying here tonight, there ought, there ought to be people who just say, well, you know what? Healing then is mine. Jesus paid for this. And even though I'm not all of the person, Jesus has already done it. And I just reach out and take it. You ought to start operating in prosperity. You ought to start operating in joy and peace and all of these things, if you truly understand this. You know, let me give you one last illustration here. When I was a kid, right before I got born again, uh, I was in a vacation Bible school and there was about 600 kids in this church. And normally I sat on the front row with my family. We were like skunks. We had our own pew. And that was our pew. We sat there every time. But because I was in this vacation Bible school, they marched us down and we were, you know, in groups and I was on the back row. And there was a guy standing up here on the platform and he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And I mean, instantly there was 20 or 30 kids around him just jumping up and down. I want it, I want it. And I thought of all of the times to be on the back row, that was just rotten. And this guy just ignored them like they weren't even there. And he kept his arm up in the air and he said, I'll give this dollar bill to the first kid that comes up here and takes it. And everybody was wondering, what's he doing? Because everybody was up there wanting it. And he just kept repeating it and kept repeating it. And finally it hit my lightning fast mind what he was talking about. And I ran down that aisle jumped up on the stage, pushed through all of the kids and this guy had his arm up like this and I reached up and grabbed his arm and climbed up his side and grabbed that dollar bill. And when I did, he looked at me and he said, now that's the first kid that came up here and took it. And he said, all of you wanted it. You were asking for it, but you didn't take it. And then he made the illustration. This is the way salvation is. Jesus has already done everything. He's forgiven your sins. He's healed your body. He's prospered you. He's commanded the blessing upon you. Every one of you, Jesus became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Second Corinthians eight, nine. It is part of the atonement for you to be filthy, stinking, dirty, rich. And somebody said, well, then why didn't it happen? Because you haven't taken it. And one of the things that keeps us from taking it is because we just don't feel worthy. I wonder if God will do that. He's offering it to every person. He's offering complete healing to every person in here. There's not a person in here that has to be sick with anything. There's not a person in here that has to be depressed or discouraged. There's not a person in here that has to be any of these things. He's provided it all. But the power that releases it is when you understand that God 
is giving you all of these things through who Jesus is and not through who you are. And you have to be aggressive. It says, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, it's either verse 11 or 12. He says, since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven is preached and it suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What that means is you got to get violent. You got to get to a place to where, man, Jesus provided this for me and I'm not putting up with this stuff anymore. You got to get, quit being passive. See, when you, when you don't understand the gospel, it makes you passive because after all, I can't impose on God. I don't know if God wants to heal me. You may even believe that healing is a part of the atonement, but you are, you're embarrassed, you're shy, you're passive because you know that you don't deserve it. And so you come to the Lord apologetically. But when you understand that he's already done it and it's all based on Jesus. And if you aren't seeing your healing manifest, if you aren't seeing your prosperity manifest, your joy and peace, it's not God who hasn't given, it's you that has allowed the devil to condemn you and hold you back. When you understand that, you get bold, you get aggressive and you start demanding things. Not that you're twisting God's arm, but that God has already done it and you know it's the devil that is hindering you and you just get an attitude like Satan, you better get out of my way or I'll run smooth over you. I'm not gonna live this way anymore. Jesus has purchased these things for me and it makes you aggressive. But the vast majority of people that come and talk to me, they're very passive. They're like, oh, I'm so terrible. Would you please pray for me? Please, pretty please. They want me to beg God. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand that he's already done it. You don't understand the good news, the nearly too good to tr be true news that Jesus has already done everything. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He's not working. He's not saving people tonight. He's not healing people tonight. He did it 2,000 years ago. His part's done. It's over. Now, will you stand up and reach out and take it? Or are you gonna continue to approach God as if it's all up to him whether you have joy? All up to him whether you have peace. God's already done his part. You need to stir yourself up or you're gonna sink to the bottom. We need to stir ourselves up. I'm trying to stir up your pure minds tonight by telling you the gospel, the good news that Jesus has already done it. You aren't waiting on God to heal. You aren't waiting on God to save, deliver, and prosper. God is waiting on somebody to mix faith with what he's already done by grace. And when you put grace and faith together, you release the supernatural power of God. Jesus is here tonight. Jesus has already provided everything. There's not a single need represented in any person's life that Jesus hasn't already provided it. It's not a matter of will God move? Will God do something? It's will you believe the gospel? And when you believe that it's been done and it's not based on your goodness, you can't cancel it. You can't do anything to make him more prone to move in your behalf. You can't do anything to make him less prone. It's just what he's done and are you gonna believe it? When you understand that, man, it releases the power of God. It starts the supernatural flow of God in your life. Amen? Praise God. Y'all in agreement? Here comes a woman who's ready to do something. Amen? Praise the Lord. Man, this is awesome. 
I wonder how people can just sit there and do nothing. This woman's doing something. She's doing what she can do. You know what? If you need a miracle from God, I want you to believe that God has already done it. Now, will you reach out and take it? How many of you need a miracle tonight? Man, I want you to stand up. That's the least we can do is stand up. If you need a miracle, I want you to stand up. And right now, we just need to reach out and start releasing the supernatural power of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you've already done your part that by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed, that we've already been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that you died to deliver us from this present evil world, all of the trauma, all of the grief, sorrow and pain. We believe that you've done your part and it's totally based on what Jesus has done. So tonight, Father, we receive this healing now, not based on our goodness, our holiness, we do it because of Jesus. We believe Jesus deserves to be healed, to be set free, and we receive it through who Jesus is. Amen. Let's have our prayer. We've already got some prayer ministers down here ministering to these people. If you need, if you need something right now, just reach out to God. Father, we are releasing... We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.